0: Support for Melbourne Food Wine comes from Lavazza. Hand picked, slowly roasted, and produced in limited quantities, Kaffa Forest Coffee is Lavazza's newest single origin coffee. Hailing from Ethiopia, Kaffa comes from the original coffee plant. Try it for yourself. Where do cooking and survival intersect in twenty nineteen? Does foie gras have a place in a bunker? What's the best Beaujolais for your bug-out bag? Today we're looking at all of this and the whole Joe Beef story for Montreal's coolest restaurant crew talking about their unique brand of cooking and their smash hit new book Surviving the Apocalypse. The late great Anthony Bourdain once said that Dave McMillan and Fred Morin and the team at Joe Beef are a significant part of what makes Montreal dangerous and delicious to anyone who loves food. Surviving the apocalypse is the topic of the discussion we recorded live with Fred, Dave and fellow chef Derek Daman at the Theatre of Ideas with the New York Times as part of the Melbourne Food and Wine Festival presented by the Bank of Melbourne. Sam Sifton, the food editor of the New York Times, moderates the session and he opens asking Dave McMillan, what is Canadian cuisine and specifically what's the cuisine of Quebec?
1: Quebecois cuisine, our population of the province of Quebec will be right, 90% francophone and then 10% other, mixed. The food of Quebec is very different than uh, perhaps the rest of North America and perhaps the oldest established cuisine in North America. There is a true Quebecois cuisine that distinguishes the population from the rest of North America. Uh, we cook French food. You know, We have our own agriculture. We have our own cheeses. Uh, we have our own fishery. One of the interesting things, though, to follow up on what Derek is saying, is the dining public of Quebec ultimately has to also be celebrated. He could not do what he does. Martin Picard could certainly not do what he does. Uh, Many of us couldn't do what we do because of this just outstanding dining public. The average diner is quite open-minded. The average diner, very young women and men at a very young age, drink natural wine, seek raw milk cheese, are raised on deer and moose from their dad's freezer, love to eat river fish, understand the seasonality of the seafood out of the Gulf of St. Lawrence, eat liver, eat sweetbreads, eat stew, eat tails and ears of pigs. Awful is not a hard sell. You know, it's just another protein on the menu. So we can actually cook a wide array of things and sell them. It's just not street credibility. You know, when I travel now with Fred often, we go to restaurants and Manhattan, certainly your hometown, I I struggle with because there's very little of the foods that I eat in these very well-known restaurants. I seek out blood pudding. I seek out andouillette or chitterlings. I seek out a nice piece of liver, medium rare. I seek out... Tails and mm-hmm. ears, and these things that I wouldn't cook in my home. Whereas I go to restaurants in Manhattan, and it's a lot of steak. Uh, yeah, it's hard to find. A lot of chicken. Yeah. We're all very, in a way, I think, kind of selfish, and there's not many
2: jobs you can go to where you can do what you want, and we can cook and serve what we want and how we're feeling without taking the diner too much in consideration because we know that the, they're going to be there, they're, they're going to be into it, and they're going to be it.
3: But of course, it's not entirely French food. This is the distinguishing characteristic of it, perhaps. Yeah,
1: They're... which is interesting in itself, right? Yeah. Often the classics of French-Canadian cuisine will be traced back ultimately to British cuisine, to the cuisine of an occupied people, right? If you look at any of the classic food items of Quebecois cuisine, you'll have trouble tracing them back to France, Yeah. right? Cheddar is a big part of our cuisine, you know? We could more or less call the cuisine of Quebec the cuisine of the Atlantic Northeast or really the French cuisine of New England. Fair enough. Right. A lot of the classic dishes of Quebecois cuisine, you'll trace back more easily to United Kingdom than you will to France. For example, you know, crepes and this, you know, pancakes, To example, the, the meat pies that we do will have more parallels with English meat pie cooking than they will perhaps with French cooking, right? So,
3: Derek, let me, let me just jump in to ask you a question. You came to, you arrive in Montreal not as a Montrealer but as a West Coaster, as a child of the Pacific Northwest, a very different cuisine and a, and a kind of different bounty of lakes and rivers and mountains and streams. How do you fit your cooking into the world that David just described?
2: I try. <laughs> a way I look at it, too, I mean, Canada, from not being from Quebec and being from West Coast, I see Canada as a very multicultural country, so I think we have a lot of inspiration to draw from as far as our cuisine is concerned. And that being said, I mean, when I moved to Montreal, I'd never been to Quebec in my entire life, and I've been there 14 years now. <coughs> I've learned leaps and bounds about, you know, how regional Quebecois cooking is, you know, from one, from one area and one region to the next, so...
1: Derek's restaurant was logical. Like even you know, the first year that he opened it, lesser food writers in the city would say, oh, like it's very similar to Joe Beef. You know? like, what do you think? Is he offending you? And I was like, no, it's not that at all. I can see what you're saying. And you know, he has influences. He likes the same restaurants in Europe that we like. Uh, he likes the same restaurants in, in England as we like. He reads. Um, he reads as we do. And the food is not like ours at all because I can tell that the recipes are completely different. Fred and I have been cooking the same vernacular of terrine and chicken sauce for 20 years. A plate that Derek cooks could possibly look like one of ours but his chicken sauce and perhaps the the way that he seasons a bird is completely completely different, different, right? His base cooking is completely different than ours which was interesting for us because we can't or don't have any pleasure eating our own food, really. <laughs> uh, so Derek's food is right in our vernacular.
3: So one of the interesting things, and I know you have started a, a dinner service at McKernan lately, but it opened essentially as a lunch spot, wide open spaces, big windows, lots of air. This is a very different atmosphere and kind of philosophy of restaurating than any of your other r- restaurants. How much of a relief is that to have a, a day shift restaurant, Derek?
2: I think we always sort of cringed at lunch when I mean, we all attempted it at one point and then sort of threw in the towel and, and that was it. But after McKiernan started, it's in a, a big warehouse. It's 400,000 square feet, uh, huge as a captive audience. There's Airbnb, there's luxury retreats, there's a bunch of small independent businesses in the building. So opening up for lunch seemed like a natural thing to do. And then it really reflected in the staff and... and you know, they're coming to work in daylight. They're leaving in daylight. You know, they're happy. They're, there's no time to go out and make bad decisions. Only good decisions have to work. They can go to the gym or go to their family and come refresh to work the next day. They're getting vitamin D through big windows. You yeah, know, yeah. it's a very, very good atmosphere. And people that are coming there to eat are having fun. It's a huge space. We have air hockey. We have ping pong. It's uh, It really took off. It's really fun.
3: So this happens to coincide with changes in your own lives, uh, that have led you to better decision-making in the off hours. And a life of sobriety would seem to indicate a business like this to be a good one. And there's a part of me, since we're all roughly the same generation, that wonders, like, are we just all growing up and getting old, and this is a good way to stay in the game? there's better
4: ways to grow up than the ways we did. And we just hope that the oncoming generations of culinary professionals and hospitality professionals can avoid making those missteps and that's what learning in history is about is we made those incidental missteps so hopefully our children or our apprentices don't make those same steps. Well it's you know? more
3: than hopefully right I mean it would seem to indicate and I'd like to ask you all about this how is sobriety changing the culture of the restaurants not for the necessarily for the customer although I'd love to know about that but for the staff themselves
1: we saw big changes at the top of the pyramid, right? You know, I went to, I don't know if you know this, but the last time we spoke, we, we spoke on stage in Montreal, I went to rehab the next day, right?
3: <laughs> That's the effect the New York Times has <laughs> on its subjects. Yeah. I didn't know that. Wow, congratulations. Yeah, the
1: next morning, thank you. Uh, but we, for sure, I, I worked on myself first, right, and... Uh, it was a, an odd, you know, three months of getting to know myself, putting in practice what I learned in rehab. I went to a high educational kind of rehab with an extra specific focus on me being, having to go back to hospitality, where, hospitality, where I, I, you know, I, I make my living selling food and wine at night. But w- when I saw the light at the end of the tunnel, I became happy and I became somewhat clear. What I noticed is that if I act like a Viking and I carry on, I, I do have an effect on the people that work under me. So if it's okay for me to drink at the bar, if it's okay for me to get really drunk at Derek's restaurant, if it's okay for me to bring all my staff to the bar across the street and buy shots, then by default, it's I lead by example. So I noticed that all of these young cooks that work in five restaurants that look up to me somewhat, or right. Fred or Derek or whoever's in the position of being at the top of the pyramid has a trickle-down effect. So as I became different, as I changed my language, as I became not selfish of my own alcoholism, when I was interested in the people that worked in the business, when I was interested in the business, that there was a change in the environment of the restaurant. So sobriety from the top of the pyramid trickled down to less staff drinking, greater overall staff sobriety, a culture and a language of wellness inside of the businesses. Yeah. And then people reaching out to me about their own issues, right? Because I decided to live my sobriety openly. So that permitted, you know, we have over 150 employees. So it permits those of them who are struggling with issues to speak to me or anyone at the top of the pyramid. And we can address that. Whereas before, I wouldn't deal with that because I was living a selfish, who am I drinking with? When am I drinking? With whom? I've changed the way that I eat drastically, I think as well as Fred over the last couple of years, and I've dumped it down considerably to a point where eating in a restaurant once a week is quite an event. Whereas before I'd eat in restaurants quite often and, you know, eat a variety of different food all the time. But I have no problem now making like a, a pork shoulder on Monday and then eating it all week long. You see what I'm saying? in that restraint of, let's say, making a big pot of soup on Sunday and eating it literally every day during the week with a simple salad and some good bread that was delicious on Monday that works its way to being stale on Friday, there's a sparseness of that. And this is also That the makes egg. you appreciate when you actually do go out and dine.
0: Kaffa Forest Coffee Lavazza is going back to the beginning with beans from the original coffee plant. This single origin coffee is rich and intense, with floral notes and the flavors of cherry and date. Add it to your menu. Lavazza, a supporter of the Melbourne Food and Wine Festival.
3: Switching to the customer, right? You're in the business of selling alcohol to people. There right. is a party that is going on. This is it is as David put it it's a there's sea world you want to see the orca you want to have an evening of excess in montreal courtesy of maison public courtesy of joe beef how does that then change for the customer
4: partially that notion comes from the belief that a a drinking man or an alcoholic has that everybody around him is drinking as much mm-hmm. right uh, we travel to new york and be hosted by friends and being under the impression that Everybody in the room at that time is having three bottles of wine, but it's not the case. What we notice now is that most customers, the vast majority of our customers, are educated and controlled and controllable people. And that we were the one with the problems. I don't think that excessive addictive behavior doesn't have to be changed as much in customer as it does in the culinary professional. The thing is, with the culinary professional, we have to look at the very start of our career. We are predisposed because we are often people with not low success academically, but people who you know maybe didn't pay attention, a possible undiagnosed ADHD, people with a, at higher risk of addiction. So we, like David was saying, we try to solve the issue currently as well at at the top and people who have issues and stuff. And I think it's also important to look at the the process and, and admission in cooking school and stuff too, and and offer those ways to students to know what to do if they face that eventually
3: I want to and I'm sorry you'll have to indulge me I want to go into surviving the apocalypse for a moment to return to the Grateful Dead because I think it's kind (laughs) of weird and fascinating that there is this whole bit in there about the dead and their effect on on the two of you I think that for those of us who grew up in the in and around uh, the world of punk rock, these noodly noodly hippies who were like our orf teachers in grade school—like it's very difficult to be cynical about them—and then here they are, celebrated both in the iconography of your social media now and in the book. And what happened? Where'd that come from?
1: I followed the Dead quite a bit when I was younger. Fred as well, uh, just you know, a fan of the music. Lots of. People And in Montreal, it's not a thing, right? Um, In Vermont it is, in Maine it is, in New York State it is, but to listen to The Grateful Dead in Quebec is being few and far between, we're not many. But there was a certain culture of The Grateful Dead uh, when we went to see shows, a hospitable. Fred has put it well that way, that the, the culture of The Grateful Dead is very hospitable. Are you okay? Do you need a blanket? Are you cold? Are you hungry? Wasn't the music wonderful tonight? You know, there was a certain non-pretentiousness of the following the Grateful Dead and and Grateful Dead music. It was high art, and it's complicated music. So when we opened Joe Beef, we wanted it to be a French restaurant, absolutely, with market-driven cuisine, but we wanted to destroy pretense that still to this day, the wine glass that we serve wine in is the cheapest wine glass you can buy. The cutlery is Same cutlery I have at home, inexpensive cutlery. There's no real luxuries in the restaurant. It's very much a simple touch of cottage. And it made sense to serve that food in a Grateful Dead music kind of atmosphere.
4: I just want to add to that. One of the other parts about the Grateful Dead that I found very interesting is most of the songs are written by Robert Hunter. And those songs still today, you would think they were written 200 years ago. They find their place in a tradition of songwriting, of American songwriting.
1: Like classic and, bistro cuisine, yeah, and that was like what I said. we do,
4: and like we approve of in food, you know, we don't want to mimic the food of France a hundred years ago. We want to fit in a tradition of French cooking, and menu writing. We try, or at least David and I try, to
0: write menu the way Robert Hunter wrote songs. At this point in the session, Sam Sifton invites questions from the audience. And an audience member asks what the panellists would recommend she eat at Joe Beef for dinner and at McKeon and Luncheonette the next day.
1: We are starting spring in Quebec. The second the ice recedes in the Gulf of St. Lawrence, uh, crab season kicks in right away. So we have a massive crab fishery, 90%, if not higher, 95% of our crab goes to uh, Japan. So that's starting up. Welks are starting up. Crab is starting up. Urchins are, are plentiful. We're still ultimately cold, so there's still a lot of charcuterie, terrines, pâtés, crusty bread. Again, it's still cold. It's damp outside. Rabbit for two, duck for two. That's what we're doing, big chocolate cakes. Wow.
4: And with daylight being such that you can actually farm with reasonable fuel use inside of a greenhouse, there's like radishes and little salads that are coming out from greenhouses that actually
3: farm in full earth So start with farming. a radish, duck for two, big chocolate cake. Sounds pretty good. But what are we going to have for lunch the next day, Derek? Oh boy. What we're
2: doing now at McKernan is actually pretty interesting. We're taking all the the last of the root vegetables just because it is the end of winter, but at McKernan we try to keep things a little bit lighter fair, because it is lunch and not to I mean not to shut you down or kill right. you during the, the day food for about work. exactly. So what we're doing now is we're taking all the root vegetables and we're curing them like like and smoking them like ham. And then slice them really thin, uh, which is a great little uh, lunch starter with homemade stracciatella, candied nuts, uh, and some little uh, saba that we made. And some, like Fred is saying, the nice greens and everything is a great way to start the light day with a light a Light and then we're back at work. That sounds pretty good. It's placebo light.
3: Yeah, I like yeah. it.
2: You know, you cook from, out of cookbooks, you experiment or when everything at home, but when it comes down to it, I mean, we all are only able and capable of cooking eight to ten things really, really well.
1: Yeah, that's true. That's very it. True.
2: You know, we can try recipes and try things and experiment and come up with these great ideas, but when it comes down to it and you scale it back, I can only cook eight things.
3: Well, give us one of them.
2: <laughs> like Dave said, pork shoulder. You just yeah, let go and get it soft. And then <laughs> There's <laughs> a weird it.
1: thing, too, right? Now, I yeah. think social media has been, like, very challenging for us in the restaurant business Because the general public can see everything. And it's very tempting. It's like an online menu if you follow food people, right? So we're in this weird situation now in restaurants where we have to make our own butter, really? (laughs) We have to make our own bread. We can't buy bread from the baker anymore. That's not acceptable. We can't buy butter from the dairy. We have to make our own butter, make our own bread. We also need to have, satisfy all of the vegans. We have to satisfy vegetarians. We have to satisfy pescatarians. We have to satisfy carnivorous meat eaters. We have to satisfy most of the allergies. So our menus are incredibly dense right now. Like literally sometimes we have 12 appetizers and 15 main courses. Where are we going? Right. You know, seven desserts, you know?
4: This complicated menu, exhaustive choices and everything, also generates an issue for workers, you know? It it makes being ready at 6 o'clock very complex every day. So we're talking now about the conditions of people in the kitchen and I think part of that, the media is a little bit to blame in that because we try to do all these things because we're trying to dance the dance of the stars, you know. And then one year, the same journalist that will attribute you stars for having a, a homemade charcuterie program, making your own candles out of beef tallow, will turn around and look at workers' condition and people that, that work like a day wage instead of hourly wage, internship and everything and scold you for it, you know? So we have to... But we've been painted,
1: we've been painted into the corner yeah, yeah. of I, having I, to make our own butter.
3: I look forward to the opening of the Pork Shoulder Restaurant. where yeah. only Pork Shoulder. It's going to be lights out, it's delicious. Gonna, like, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's going to be, be fantastic. Easy.
0: That was David McMillan, Fred Morin, and Derek Daman with moderator Sam Sifton from the New York Times speaking at the Theatre of Ideas, part of the Melbourne Food and Wine Festival. You've been listening to Melbourne Food and Wine Melbourne Food and Wine Festival is made possible with the support of Visit Victoria. I'm Pat Nurse. Thanks for listening.